All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll finish this book up tonight. I have a, a lot to cover. It's a very, um, just a very good chapter packed with uh, many things we need to know. So we'll pray, we'll get started. Lord, we, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the kids that are being ministered to out back. And um, we pray that you bless their teachers as they share with them and pour into them your word and your love. And by your spirit, I pray they draw closer to you, Lord. We lift up Bo Pankow to you, God. We pray for a just a miraculous healing for him, Lord, as that little guy is suffering with uh, what appears to be type 1 diabetes now, and that diagnosis is awfully early. Um, we're praying that it's a wrong diagnosis or that there's some healing that you can do and that he wouldn't have that. And so we lift him up to you and, and as well as with his family, that they'd have wisdom and uh, just a peaceful heart as they move forward in this process, Lord. Lord, lift up Cassie Prophet to you, Lord, as she's home now, but is also waiting for test results on a gallbladder with the pregnancy and all. We pray for uh, healing and, and, uh, and uh, well, just safety for her and for the baby, Lord. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of things going on uh, with people and with health and spiritual warfare and, and things. I call it Warfare Wednesdays. I can just plan on it as I'm about ready to dive in and study. Um, here, comes, uh, here comes Satan. And that's okay. That means we're effective. Um, but uh, I hate to see little guys like Bo and, and Cassie, the vulnerable, to be attacked like that. And so we lift them up to the Lord and pray that you continue to do that throughout this week as they move forward. Timothy is uh, trying to encourage, or Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to do what he's called to do there uh, in Ephesus. As we've discussed, as we've gone through this chapter, or this book, it's like a chapter, it's not very long. Paul is in prison. He's in one of the darkest places of his life, and yet he's not thinking of himself. He's not self-centered. He's other-centered, which is key to a to, to, to knowing Christ. I think that's, a, that's the telltale sign of someone who's walking with Jesus is they're focused on others and not themselves. And uh, Paul is certainly a great example of that for us. He senses in Timothy that there's some reluctance and maybe some hesitation as to moving forward with his ministry that God has called him to and equipped him to and has basically put him there to do. And so Paul starts off with the very important thing, the word charge. Charge is a legal term. I swear, that's like swearing an oath. If you become a police officer, you'll stand and lift up your right hand and swear that you're going to uphold whatever it is they tell you to uphold. (laughs) Or the military or whatever. So when Paul says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, colon, we won't get into the rest of it yet. That's what he means by it. Timothy, raise your right hand and swear that you're going to do this and fulfill this oath, this promise, this thing that God's called you to do. It's a very important thing to do for every believer. It's one thing to be saved and to ask God to come into your life and make things better, which we all want. There's nothing wrong with that. But he does call us to a ministry, calls us to serve and to be someone who's making disciples of all the nations, regardless of whether you're in a position of 
pastorship or otherwise, you're still called to make disciples of all the nations. We all are. And so that's something we can all do, even in our quiet times at home or by ourselves, is to raise our right hand and understand the charge that God has given us to be servants, to consider others higher than ourselves, and to not be self-serving. I have several cross-references for this. You'll have to forgive me to go. When I was studying, there was so much to take from this. And it's such a short chapter. Allow me to fill in the time gap. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, as Paul has alluded to in his first sentence there, God's going to judge the living and the dead. I thought we better focus on that. There's coming a time, Timothy, when everybody's going to be judged for how they conducted themselves. First and foremost, are you saved? But secondly, what did you do with it? How did you conduct yourself as a son or daughter of God? Romans 14.10 says, But why do you judge your brother? But why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's considered the Bema seat of Christ, is the words we use. It's not the great white throne judgment that we're going to read about here in a minute. It's not about salvation. This is a judgment seat like you'd see at the Olympics. As you stand before the judges, they'll score you. That's an important thing to understand about this. Scoring in heaven? Levels of heaven? No, not levels, but certainly crowns. And we'll talk about that here later on in the teaching. There are things we do for Christ. There is this misunderstanding about the scripture, our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. And we apply that to the good deeds we do after we're saved. And that's not the case. That's a misunderstanding of Scripture. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me once I'm saved. And now I do those good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those aren't filthy rags. Those are appropriate. Those are uh, worthy of accommodation from the Lord. It's a good thing. He wants to see us. Well done, Good and faithful servant. For what? Not doing things down here or for doing things down here? You see? And so we all stand before this judgment seat of Christ. And so this verse, even Romans 14.10, is often misused too. Therefore, don't judge me, brother. Quit looking at me and judge me. I just feel like everybody's judging me. Well, that doesn't make any sense because Paul just told us not to judge. Is Paul judging us? If that's the definition of the word judge that he's using here, then Paul just broke 14.10, by telling us not to judge one another. That's judgment from Paul to us. It's not what he means. I don't get to award people. I'm not in that position of the Olympic judge that says, Sam's done exceptionally well, whereas Amanda, hmm. I don't get to do that. Nor do I get to sit on the judgment seat of the white throne judgment. You're condemned, you're not. It's not my position. I can't do that. But as a pastor, that's my very job, and that is your job as making a disciple of Christ, is to tell people, you're in the wrong, you're in danger of hellfire, and you can't do that without telling people about their sin. That's not judging people. That's warning. There's a tsunami coming. Quit judging me, brother. I can swim. <laughs> what I'm talking about. So there is a judgment that's coming. He's going to judge. Timothy, he's going to judge. He's looking at what you're doing. Whatever you're contemplating, moving forward or quitting, he's watching this. All of us. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-17, through 17, it's kind of a long one. For we are God's fellow workers. You ever consider yourself that? That means like he plows and sows and waters and does what he's supposed to do. We're fellow workers. That means we do those things too, or we're supposed to. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For there is no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work and what sort of sort it was or it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, survives the fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's New Testament. He's not talking about salvation. He made that very clear. No, you're saved. I'm talking about once we've laid the foundation of salvation in your life, now you build upon that with either gold and silver, which is supposed to withstand. Those are the pure things that you want to build with. The righteous works that God calls you to do, you build upon that salvation. Or we build with hay and wood, which are very flammable. (laughs) And those things are done with impure hearts. I do these things based off of how they're going to exalt me as opposed to exalt God. Or it's not what God called me to do. It was a man's wisdom kind of thing. And I've, I've fallen prey to that myself. I have lots of ideas. They're not all God's ideas. I've got to pray about them. Sometimes I even start them. And God just doesn't let me follow through or it just doesn't happen. I've got to sit back and say, mm, that was me, not God. There's nothing wrong with that. I like people taking ventures of faith. I like to take ventures of faith. Not every one of my ventures of faith was of God, though. And sometimes they're not. And that's hay, wooden stubble. And I'm not afraid to admit it. I don't think anybody's going to build the pure, perfect, whatever that's going to survive in the end. He says it's all going to burn, and whatever remains, yay. You know? I think I'll be surprised at how much actually remains. But that's fine. And so we're, we're clearly told about this. Paul is clearly telling the Corinthian church about this. We need to clearly understand this. I don't get to just be saved and sit back and wait for more to come my way. My job is to now build. We're called to that. Matthew 16, 26 through 27. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. That's Jesus' words, not Paul's. We are going to be judged. We will be awarded. And I'm looking forward to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-10. through 10, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that Bema seat, 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's another reminder. It isn't an isolated scripture. It's a common theme that Paul made sure every single believer he ever taught or brought to the Lord understood. Now you're saved, now there's more. Revelation 21.11, this is the great white throne judgment though. This is different. Then I saw the great white throne, or a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens, or heaven, fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you've got the book of life, but you've got these other books. Now, some of them are probably the sinless that we have. Because this white throne judgment is for unbelievers only. We stand at the Bema seat of Christ. We're saved. There is no sin counted against us. There are no books to open for us. This is for sinners. This is their lists, and they're judged accordingly. This is when the sentencing takes place. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's a rough one, I know. But these are the judgments. So when Paul tells Timothy, I'm charging you, you're going to be held accountable for what I'm about to tell you, Timothy. God is writing down the things you're doing and keeping track of the things you're doing for him. Now this isn't meant to be a fear thing. It's meant to understand it's not a waste of time, Timothy. It's not fruitless. You're fulfilling your ministry. Fulfilling your ministry, that's what God calls us to do. Sometimes we think fulfilling the ministry is the fruit or the outcome, and it's not. Your ministry is to be faithful to what God's called you to do, whether one or a hundred show up, whether nobody shows up. It doesn't make any difference. You're faithful to fulfill the ministry that God called you to do. Nobody got saved when I did my outreach. But you did the outreach. Your ministry has been fulfilled. The increase comes from God. The fruit comes from the Lord. People say no. People reject the gospel. People walk away. But the truth has been heard. The ministry has been fulfilled. The warning's gone out. The consequences or the results either way are still the results of your ministry that you've done. Be faithful. Here's what he tells him to do. The first thing he says, preach the word, exclamation point. Couldn't be more emphatic about it. As we see a move away from God's word, and this keeps coming up in every single teaching, and I'll try not to bring it up in every single teaching because I recognize it too. The importance of God's word cannot be overestimated. It cannot be overemphasized. It's everything. I see too many, and we see too many, all of us do, sort of Christians who know what the Word of God says, but have somehow in their minds justified how it doesn't apply to them or doesn't apply to this time. 
or it doesn't apply to this nation or this people group or whatever, or somehow or another, it's different depending on the person who stands in front of God's word. Some of it is for them, some of it isn't, and that's just not true. Every bit of it is. And he warns Timothy, because this is going to be the temptation for every preacher. Preach the word, because the temptation is to not preach the word. He tells him, I want you to be ready, in season and out of season. What does in season mean? Well, I knew I was going to teach tonight, so I was prepared. I take the time. I know at Wednesday at 7 o'clock, I'll be coming up here after worship, and I'll be teaching about a chapter, if not more, depending on the night. So that's in season. But I have no idea what I'm going to run into out there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in season, Monday, Tuesday. Those are out of season times for me. But I need to be prepared. Always be able to give a reason for the hope which lies within you. Always be able to go over the teaching you've heard or your quiet time scripture that you read. Be ready in season and out of season to preach, to share. So often we're not in the out-of-season times. And some will come up with the very question you were waiting someone to ask you. God, if someone would just come up to me and say, what must they do to be saved? I think I could, I think I could do that. And then they do. You know? They start crying or they start weeping. And you say, hey, what's wrong? And they begin to... Sorry, Evangeline Warner. Are you listening, Evangeline, online? That's my daughter. Stop. It doesn't matter how old they are, I can still rebuke them, even online. I have no idea. No. <laughs> Be ready in season, out of season. When someone comes up and begins to weep and cry, to be able to have the Scripture on hand, to be able to have at least be prayed up so the Holy Spirit can move through you and share whatever He places on your heart to be ready for those things. So oftentimes we read our quiet times as a self-help book. And I suppose that's okay. We do want to buoy our spirits. We do want God to speak to us and change us. But oftentimes these scriptures and these times we have with God is He's getting us prepared for the people we're going to meet. For the for the conflict we're going to have, for the warfare we're going to enter into. He talks about that all the time. Put on the full armor of God. Be ready for the warfare. Be ready to engage. Be engaged properly, you know. And in my quiet time, God prepares me for that. When Jesus was done with a full day of ministry, he sends his guys in the boat to go across. And what does he do? He goes up on the mountaintop to what? To recharge, because tomorrow's coming. He's going to spend time with God in prayer. I need to be with my father. I need some alone time. I need to have him fill me again because tomorrow I'm going to pour out to others. We're called to that. Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Here's what you do in that preaching. You convince. That tells me something. There's going to be need. There's people that need convincing. They aren't just going to say, wow, the voice of God. They don't. They've got questions after you drop that wonderful scripture on them. Bam! What are you going to do about that? Well, i got a problem with it. Here's my problem with it. Well, I know you're going to have problems with it. There's a follow-up question. It's a conversation. You know? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and 
Jesus, God's son, God incarnate, has to have a conversation with this guy to talk him through this. No, 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 Nicodemus, you don't have to enter your mother's womb. Let's back up a little bit. I'm talking about being born of water and being born of spirit. You've been born of water. You're born of a, of a woman. You came out. Now you've got to be born of the spirit because that hasn't been born yet. You're kind of dead here. And he goes through the process with him. Convince. He also needs to rebuke in his preaching. That isn't fun. Nobody wants to hear a rebuke. I don't want to hear a rebuke. I've learned that they're beneficial. But I don't care how many times I've benefited from a rebuke. I've never, ever enjoyed it. Not once. Because it hurts my pride. It hurts. I thought I knew. Nobody likes that. It has to be done, though. It's part of it. It's how I grow. Exhort. That's an encouragement for someone to believe, to, to do. And it, uh, believe is a simple word. I, there's more to it. When you really believe something, you begin to apply it to your life and you begin to act it out. And begins, it, like James says, you become a doer of it, as was prayed by Aaron when we started, to exhort people to be doers of it with all long suffering. It, it, it isn't easy. He alluded to that earlier in last week's chapter, and I didn't really cover it. When he talks about um, those that come into household and are, people are led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. That's a frustrating thing. There is a mountain in, in spiritual warfare in anybody's spiritual life. Every one of you has this mountain. Okay, just picture it in your mind. And it is your sin nature, and it is everything you thought you knew and everything. And God is trying to take us from the mountain to the promised land. And for some reason, some people are just digging a trench with their feet around this mountain. Around the mountain and around the mountain and around. Always learning, getting Bible study after Bible study, collecting as much information, waiting for that magical phrase to snap them out of their rut so they can actually get to the promised land of victory. But they go around and around and around. And he acknowledges that. And here's what happens. And here's what he's telling them back in chapter 3. I don't mean to backtrack too much. But the problem is, as long as it was well packaged in chapter 3 to these people, they'll believe and listen to anything. It doesn't have to be the truth. Well, that makes sense. Or that sounds good. Or that was beautiful. Or that made me feel warm. And they take this non-truth packaged well, gullibly into their lives and into, and they begin to apply it because the book told them so or because this person told them this. So, but it's not in scripture. But it seems like great advice. So they bring it in and it sets them back decades sometimes for these people. Because they've got to unlearn that. And by the time they figure out this thing they picked up from somebody else, not from God, they've got it so entrenched in their life and God's got to root it out of them. It's a hard thing. Always being taught, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They proceed no further, it says. Their progress is no further. You have to make a decision, and I have to make a decision. I think it's a decision we make Often, I don't know about every day or every week or every month, but periodically I need to look at my life and say, God, 
and just have an honest prayer time with him. Not the typical thing, God, I need this. If, if I need to snap out of a rut, get me out of this rut. If I'm right where you want me to be, like I think I am, because I wouldn't be here if I didn't think I was, leave me here. This is right where I, I want to be, right in your will. But if I need to snap out of this, snap me out of it. I want to progress. I want to move forward. I don't want to be stuck. Oftentimes, it's as simple as a small bit of obedience in an area you've been reluctant to be obedient in, honestly. It really is. You thought somehow you could leave the sin in your life and, 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 and keep it compartmentalized away from Christianity, away from your walk from Jesus, and it is keeping you from moving forward with the Lord. And those are the things that God wants to root out. And he does it through his word. You'll be reading along and it'll pop off and you'll say, mm, that could be for me or I could think of somebody else that it's for. I think that's for Aunt June. I'll send it to her. And that way I don't have to deal with it. Or it's for me. <laughs> with all long suffering and teaching, it takes time to build Math is hard. It starts with addition and subtraction. We've got to learn your numbers first, and then addition and subtraction, then multiplication, then division. But you cannot run up here in math without learning the basics first. There's just a teaching process that goes on. And I have to learn it. I think about uh, training. Training for training's sake you don't train nearly as hard. You just don't. If, if I was to tell David, on Monday, we're going to fight. You and I, David. And we are going to go at it. It's going to be out here in the parking lot. And I'm going to advertise and it's going to go down. And I'm not going to stop. And I, here we go. We're both going to get ready. A lot better than if I said, you know, like in karate class or something, you know, with sparring. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Good one. I'll see you next Thursday. You know, I feel like I got a good sweat on, you know, kind of like, it's a little different when you know you're going to go, you know, a little different. Think about the military. I, I don't mean I'm over you, Amanda. I'm a little different when you realize you're going to be deployed. You pay attention a little bit more. When we found out we were going over to Iraq and they started taking us through the NBC training, which is your nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare, because they said, you're probably going to get hit. Oh my goodness, you didn't have to tell anybody to pay attention. They showed us film of mustard gas and, and all the things that would happen to us and, and, and the blisters. and the, Oh my God, you learned how to dawn and clear your mask. You learned how to put on your mop gear properly. You knew how to move things because it was very likely that was going to happen. And I tell you, the first time the alarm went off over there, oh boy, you'd never seen a bunch of guys move so fast before. And do it right. Except for one kid who's from Alabama. He put his filters in backwards and couldn't breathe. Horrible situation. Kind of funny now. It wasn't funny in the bunker at the time. But Guys, that dumb story aside, we study, we learn, we teach, because you're going to go through warfare and you're going to be used by God to save other people from hell and you're going to need to maintain your walk so that you can do that mission. You have to stay spiritually healthy so that you can help others get spiritually healthy. We all need that. And we train like it's going to happen because it's going to happen. It's going to be your spouse, your kids. It's going to be friends, relatives, co-workers. 
They're going to need you in their life. And they're going to need you to be strong and for you to tell them and to give them a reason for the hope which lies within you. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you've got to preach the word. You've got to be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, long suffer, and teach. For the time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables or stories. We saw that happen in Jesus' ministry, actually. He says, why are you teaching them in parables now? Because hearing they'll hear and seeing they'll see, and I didn't... It's a strange verse. It's very hard to explain to people. It's like I told them plainly. I was telling them plainly. He told his disciples to their faces several times, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again three days later, and I want you to be ready for that. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you're not swallowed up with sorrow, with grief. And what happened? Just went right over their heads. There's going to come a time back then, Timothy's day and age. Timothy, you're going to see this. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear the truth because they have their own desires, their own ideas of what they need to hear. I think this is what I need from God. I don't need that from God. I need this from God. And they start gathering teachers who will itch their ears and not give them what they need, which is the whole counsel of God. It works together. I'm probably pre-diabetes myself, you know, too. Type 2. Probably. It's not hard to imagine that. Now, there's a couple things I can think about when it comes to my health. I can just plan on using insulin. I could plan on maybe exercising. I could plan on eating right. Or I can plan on doing all of it. All of it. It's comprehensive. There isn't a silver bullet. There isn't a one thing. There isn't a catch-all. There are things we can do, and it's comprehensive. And Christianity is the same way. I can't say that I need this fixed in my life, so I'm going to watch a a preaching series on this and ignore the rest of God's counsel. It all works together. My problem isn't with my spouse. My problem is with submission to Jesus Christ. Or my understanding of God's word or my obedience in this area. Sometimes we just think they're unrelated and they're not. It's absolutely a part of it. The way I am when I come home from work is because I don't do this. And that's why we start our arguments or our fights. Because I'm in the flesh when I show up, when I didn't do what God It all comes together. All of it. But because we have our own desires and because we have itching ears, we heap up for ourselves teachers and they turn, they will turn our ear, their ears away from the truth and turn aside to the stories. They're easier to digest. We start with stories with the kids. They like David and Goliath. They like these things. They help us understand bigger truths. It's hard for kids to think abstractly. They do eventually, but it's hard at first. And so you have to come at it from a different way. I understand the story of David and Goliath. I'm a little guy, they say, or I'm a little gal, and I want to be strong, and I'm only as strong as my body lets me, and everybody's stronger than I am, but if I have God, see, they get it. 
But we grow up. And we shouldn't need those stories anymore. We should be able to understand what it means and what God's called us to. The word endure means to put up or put up with. Not only do they just not choose it, they won't put up with it. Um, I shared a quote with some of our guys earlier today, and I think I'll share it with you tonight. Because there's going to come a time when the world won't put up with you or with I, with myself. It's a quote from 15 years ago with Paul Washer. He's a pastor, and he sat very soberly. And it's a much longer speech. I just took an excerpt from it. He tells the group of Christians, you will be isolated from society. Anyone who runs for office will actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally we are silenced. We will be called things we are not and persecuted, not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which of course is love and tolerance. You'll go down in history as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind. We keep thinking that it's going to come like, you're too loving or you're too gracious or you're too merciful. That's not how the persecution is going to go down. They're going to accuse you of being too rigid in your doctrine, too steadfast in your beliefs of God's word and trust in God's word. You won't believe, you believe that? You, you honestly think that about, about that activity in life and that sin? You think that way? Well, yes, that's what the Bible says. Oh my goodness. Evolve already, they'll tell you. Most of the church, it says, out of the seven churches that were written to, five of them were condemned. Only two survived. That's a ratio there. I don't know, hopefully it's not <laughs> hopefully it's not a universal ratio, but that's not good. As most of the churches will have left their first love of Jesus Christ, a relationship with Him, a personal loving relationship with Christ, but also have stopped walking the walk, which is what the accusation is for all five of the other churches. Timothy, they're not going to want to listen to your teaching anymore. They're not going to want to hear God's Word. They're not going to want to know the hard truths anymore. But that doesn't mean you don't do that. What good is it if nobody shows up and I'm teaching the truth? It's fulfilling your ministry. What good is it if they won't hear me? Maybe I need to dumb it down or water it down or whatever terms we use so that they can at least get something out of it. He hasn't called us to that. But you, Timothy, verse 5, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. It may not be popular, Timothy. It may take some enduring. You may feel like you're only doing the work of evangelism because nobody's coming to know the Lord or receiving you or listening to you. But you need to still fulfill your ministry. Verse 6, For I am already poured out as a drink offering, Paul says, and the time of my departure, death, or going on to be with the Lord is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved, uh, loved, uh, who have loved his appearing or looking forward to his appearing. Paul mentions that crown of righteousness that I'm going to earn, he says. It's the beam of seat of Christ. I get a crown there. A diadem, you might say, the, the leaves, you know, the leafy crown that they would give to the Olympians you know, when they'd win. I've got that coming. Paul was able to look back and say, I've not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. I've given it all out. It wasn't all received, but I gave it all out. He preached to the Jews often. Very few of them got saved. The Gentiles listened far more than the Jews did, which is where his heart was actually. It's interesting, he says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. It's an interesting offering. You can look that up in the Old Testament when they would do that. You'd have your regular grain offerings and your meat offerings and things, and you would literally take the cup and you would just pour it. Oh, and that's it. You just pour it out on top of there. And when it's gone, it's gone. And it was considered the Lord's. And some would say, well, what a waste, you know, or what a, you you should have drank some of that. or what? You, You didn't take any of that life for yourself. No, I'm just being poured out like a drink offering, he says. And I'm about done. There's a few drops left here while I'm in prison. So hear me, Timothy. You know. Is that for Timothy only? Is that for Paul only? Is that for everybody in the room today? My life is not my own. It is no longer I that live, but Christ live in me. As John said, I've got to decrease that he might increase. I pour out my life. My hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my expectations of what I think my life should look like. Mm. That really has to be thought through and prayed through. Now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and my hope is in heaven, my reward is in heaven, my eternity is the most important thing to me now. Now how do I live my life as a drink offering? Poured out for God. Verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Do you remember Demas? (laughs) I do. Last thing we heard about Demas, I think it was in Colossians 4, when he concludes his letter to the Colossians, Demas greets you. He said a bunch of other things about a bunch of other guys, but at the time, Demas was with Paul, and the only thing Paul could say was, oh, Demas says hi. See, Demas at that time was already thinking about leaving Paul. Very inactive in the ministry. Just kind of hanging around the fringes. And Demas says, tell him I said hi. Okay. Demas says hi. By the time we get to 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, Demas is gone. It says for this reason, having loved this present world, he has departed for Thessalonica. This world is far more important. I'm missing out. I want more than what Paul has to offer, what Christ or Christianity has to offer. I want more. Guys, it is not uncommon for people to go off the rails in Christianity. They go off the rails. It's called backsliding, and sometimes it's not even that. It's just absolutely off the rails because they love this present world too much. They expected more. They deserve more, they think. It's not the case. 
some other people that are with Paul. Crescians or Crescians. He's gone to Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia. Now those guys haven't left him or forsaken him. They're just not with them right now. Don't get that confused and don't lump them in with Demas here. Demas is gone. He's off the rails. But these two guys are ministering in Galatia and uh, Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Good old Dr. Luke. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the physician, and also the author of the book of Acts. He's with me still. A faithful brother there, isn't it? Patching Paul up. Accepting his role in the ministry to make sure that Paul continues. And then writes some books on the side for a brother who needs to know the full account of the Gospel. That's neat. What a great ministry. He also says, before I move on, Get Mark when you come to meet me and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. You guys remember Mark? Mark is the guy who left them and caused caused probably the first church split. Probably not the first. They've been going on since the dawn of time. But between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul were thick as thieves. Probably a terrible way to categorize them. But Barnabas knew about this Saul guy who got saved, and he was a persecutor of the church, and Barnabas loved Paul and figured this is genuine. This guy's really saved. And he kept trying to bring him to the disciples, and the disciples were like, yeah, we believe you. He's saved. Get him away from us. I don't want him to kill us. We kind of believe, you know. He's sort of saved. Barnabas was a good brother and took care of Paul and, and helped him and brought him back a second time and, and, and all. And, and they were just... They ministered. They went on, on, on missionary journeys together, starting churches together and all these things. Well, they bring along Barnabas' uh, I think is his nephew or his cousin, nephew, I think. And his name's John Mark. And John Mark is fine, but halfway through his first missionary trip, he heads home. I don't want to be here anymore. And he leaves. But here's the... Um, Here's the division. It's in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. This Mark here. Let's, Let's give this kid a second chance. Just like you got a second chance, Paul. Let's give him a second chance. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches." These are some big boys in the Bible not getting along over this John Mark. Paul says at the end of his ministry, hey, bring John Mark with you. Now, there's lots of ways to look at this. Was Paul wrong? I don't know. I do know that the Bible follows Paul and not Barnabas after that split. So that tells me something, that the Holy Spirit followed Paul. We don't hear anything about Barnabas' ministry after this split. Did Barnabas not submit to his younger but in authority brother, Paul? Lots of ways to teach this. Either way, the end result was 
John Mark became beneficial to the ministry probably through the one-on-one event, you know, discipleship of Barnabas, which is maybe what Barnabas was called to and Paul didn't understand. Who knows? And Paul was more of a big picture guy. We need to get the whole city. And Barnabas says, no, I got to get Paul and I got to get John Mark. And he saw the individual, the person. I think both are useful in ministry, but not always compatible for the mission. Not always. Either way, they departed company or went their own ways, and two missionaries were sent instead of one. That's a bonus, two teams. And John Mark is now useful. And so this is Paul's way of saying, bring him to me. I could use him right now. He might be useful now. It's a good uh, restoration thing that we're reading here. It's good. In verse 12, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, Bring the cloak that I left with Corpus or Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. I can read when I'm here, but I'm cold. You know, some very practical things here, some very real things. I'm in a dark, cold dungeon. It's going to get colder. Please don't. I don't. I'm old and crippled. Bring me that coat as fast as you can, Timothy. But also bring with me the books I need to read. I want the parchments. Even though he knows he's not going to get out of here and probably doesn't need to study, I need those for comfort. I need that right now. Bring that to me. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. We don't know what that means. Here's the two thoughts. Alexander the coppersmith just was an opponent verbally, but oftentimes the the blacksmith or the coppersmith was the torturer. And that seems, since he doesn't say that, he doesn't say Alexander did the gospel much harm or hindered us, you know, he said he did me much harm. It's probable that Alexander was the torturer of Paul while in prison to get him to deny Christ or whatever. And Paul's prayer for this man, oh God, save this delightful soul. Who's, may God repay him. May God repay him. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Watch out, Timothy. Just beware of him. Don't have to be scared of him, but he isn't going to let you continue like he didn't let me continue. Or he's going to do the same things to anybody, you know, unless a heart change happens. So he warns him of that. That's fair. Finally, at my first events, no one stood with me, but all forsook me may not be charged against them. And that's why it's probably not what Alexander was doing. There's a whole host of believers in this household of Caesar. None of them stood with Paul. None of them wanted any of what Alexander had to offer. None of them wanted to stand beside him. Oh, Paul's getting beat. Let's stand beside him. Fear? Cowardice? That's a hard thing to read that people ran from Paul's persecution. I don't know that I would have stayed either. I'd like to think that I would. I'd like to think that I'd have stood there and taken the punishment with him. But I don't know. You don't know until you're in that position, you know. Paul's very gracious in this. 
The first time I was accused, no one stood with me. They all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, which is very, very similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They don't realize the impact. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. They didn't, but he did, which is what we were talking about on Sunday. Maybe nobody's there alongside of you. Maybe people don't understand you, but he does. He needs to be your all in all. He needs to be your friend and only friend if that's what it takes. He needs to be your counselor and only counselor if that's who he is. He needs to be your teacher and only teacher. We have to be fulfilled in Christ and full and, com- and, and complete in Christ. The Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Man, you can't. I, I wrote down here 11 20, 2021 Calvary Chapel Association Conference. God's protection of you and guarding of you and keeping you alive and helping you to avoid the pitfalls and the snares like we read. Remember what it's for so that the message might be preached fully. It isn't always just because JD's a great guy or that you're a great person that God just says, I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you. No, I still need to use you. Someone's got to go to Galatia. Someone's got to go over here. Someone's got to witness to Nero, that crazy, you know, and Paul's just the guy. So that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. That's why I was delivered. That's why he strengthened me. That's why he stood beside me. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Throws that in there. Like Daniel. Lion was going to kill me, but I was delivered from it. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that's not a name it and claim it like God. Nothing ever bad's going to happen to me. Well, we know that's not true with Paul. He says that after the shipwrecks, after the beatings, after the lion, after Alexander the coppersmith, I'm preserved and able to still speak and preach the gospel with a clear mind and a clear mouth as much as I can by the grace of God. Paul thought it was amazing that he was still alive and able to preach and thankful for it and took the time while in prison not to care for himself but to write letters to others. Verse 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Priscilla and Aquila were good, were good brother and sister. They were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. They sat across the table probably many a night, you know, Good brothers and sisters. Wherever Priscilla and Aquila went, there was always a church in their house. The word of God was always going to be shared, no matter where God took them, whether that was from persecution and they had to leave town. doesn't matter where they landed. That's where their church was. They always had it. Good ones. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Paul the healer, Paul the guy whose apron could be passed around and would heal people if they touched it, left somebody sick. That tells me something. Tells me something about the doctrine of of this, you know, if you had enough faith, you'd be healed. Paul left this kid sick. Is it because the kid didn't have enough faith? Or was it because it wasn't God's will to heal this guy? 
It's important we pick up on the whole counsel of God and not listen to stories because it's little golden nuggets like this that help us to understand why it is. That if it's God's will, you'll be healed. And if it's not, it's not. Do your utmost to come before winter. It's going to get cold. I'm going to butcher this. Pulis? I want to say Publius, but it's not that. There's not a couple B's in there. But greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Who are these folks? I don't know. We don't know. They're just people that are with him, people that say hi, people that are helping him. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Now that's a heavy letter to get from your spiritual father. Wonder how many times you read it. I bet a lot. Lord, we thank you for this letter. We're living in times where it's not going to be easy. Christians aren't going to be on top. We're not going to be the majority. Our brand of Christianity, believing in your word completely and trusting in its inerrancy and infallibility, isn't going to be popular as time moves on. Lord, we pray that we'd receive this letter as you intended it to be written and to be received, that we'd have boldness, that we take the warnings to heart and be prepared ahead of time before it's too late, before the decision needs to be made. We've already made that decision to follow you, to be true, to be ready, out of season to share your word when it's not popular, when it's not received, when it's going to put us into harm's way, that we wouldn't keep quiet. That we would be out loud for you like Paul was, like Timothy was, like Titus is, like many of the other brothers and sisters named in the scriptures, that we would then follow because it doesn't end with them. It goes on with us and today's the day. We've been appointed to live during this time to be the loud... (laughs) truth bearers, light bearers of this world. And I pray that we would not hide it and that we would not be quiet, that we do it in love, but we would fulfill our ministries, God, that you've called us to today. But we don't consider our lives dear to ourselves. We will be poured out like drink offerings. We're willing to do that. So God, tonight we give you our lives again. All of us, every bit of it, every hour, every minute of our life that's left, God, it'll be to serve you, to love you, to share the gospel, to save people, to make disciples of all the nations. God, help us, Lord, to fulfill our ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.